Rudyard Griffiths here, Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the news with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you, hopefully, with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. Sean, Stuart, great to be in conversation with you once again. Sean, Stuart, great to be in conversation with you again this week. Hey, guys. Hey, great to connect. Well, um, two topics on the docket. First, we got to dig into the results of uh, last weekend's conservative leadership vote. We're not going to bother our listeners with mere trivialities. We're going to talk big picture. What does this mean for the future of the conservative movement in Canada? And then the back half of the show, uh, let's return to our empty office series that we have the hub right now exploring this uh, fraught return to work. Lots of uh, news on that front this week. We'll get into that for you. And also some of the comments that uh, listeners have been sharing with us. Some are not happy, Stuart, but uh, you're the editor-in-chief, so <laughs> you you take the uh, the flurry of uh, digital rotten fruit uh, thrown at your inbox. Uh, luckily, um, I don't have to see that. Um, but let's jump into the leadership first, guys. And maybe Sean, as our oracle of Delphi through the last six months that we've um, you know chosen at the Hub to really try to go deep into the conservative movement around this uh, this important vote. Um, boy, did it ever turn out to be an important vote. And I guess, Sean, what I want is not the sense of the winners and losers, but more um, what does this mean for, for the party and the movement? Just how important was last uh, weekend? I think it's significant. Um, you know, one thing I thought about, guys, as I watched the results was how Aaron O'Toole's attempt to, you know, in effect, move the party to the center um, in hindsight was just bound to fail. It was such a, um, a kind of alien exercise uh, when you think about it, um, given the just overwhelming show of support for Pierre Polyev, which represented, you know, the, the kind of complete 180 in a way of what uh, Aaron O'Toole was hoping to achieve. It sort of reminded me, guys, I don't know if you remember, after Mitt Romney was defeated in 2012, the Republicans carried out this post, this autopsy, this post-mortem. And the, the, the kind of, in a nutshell, it said, move to the center on immigration and all of these other um, efforts to try to reach kind of more centrist voters. And then Trump came in and threw all that away and then ultimately won. And um, I think there is something of a, of a parallel here that Polyev has rejected the prescriptions of the kind of chattering class on on um, where the kind of energy and and um, and, uh, and and where I mean I'll just say the energy is uh, within conservative politics and and he was rewarded for that and he's going to have now kind of carte blanche to to take the party um, in in that particular direction. So, Stuart, to come to you, you know, understandably, we're often always kind of fascinated by the idea that, you know, people mold the moment. Um, and especially when it comes to politics, because I think there is a kind of cult of leadership and idea that these leaders kind of descend and then make the political environment reflect, you know, their their perceptions of, of, of the moment. Um, I guess my question to you is, 
to what extent was in a sense this inevitable if i look at almost every other western democracy at this moment um europe the united states certainly it seems as if all the center right parties have shifted and shifted hard in some cases uh towards and out the, the populist spectrum should we look at last weekend in a sense as just an inevitable and, and a win by the candidate, I'll give him the credit for this, that was smart enough to understand that there were these larger forces at play here, that conservatism as we know it is kind of dying. There's something new coming. And Canada in a way was like the last weird holdout. And Aaron O'Toole was like, you know, the Andalusian ape that's now dropped off the evolutionary chain. Yeah, uh, I, I think actually that might be the most underrated skill in politics, and it is underrated and also extremely, extremely rare. It's the kind of person who has that political instinct to just know which way things are going and to not just know, but to have the confidence to take a bet on it. And, you know, the the thing I always look back to is 2015 when Justin Trudeau was newly leader of the Liberal Party and he was heading to the left and he was saying, I'm going to legalize weed and I'm going to uh, run deficits. And um, you can see that we obviously know that the chattering classes were saying that's a crazy thing to do. But we also know that a lot of political people thought it was a crazy thing to do because Thomas Mulcair said, I'm going to I'm the NDP leader and I'm going to balance budgets. And I think the conservatives were pretty happy about what Justin Trudeau was doing um, with his campaign at the time. And, you know, he just kind of, or Justin Trudeau or whoever was advising him just kind of knew better. They knew that something was going on and that having bold ideas, whether or not people were super crazy about those ideas, maybe was less of the issue than that Justin Trudeau had them and, you know, backed them. Um, so I think there's some uh, resonance there with Pierre Polyev who, um, you know, if you're just bold and you have your ideas and they kind of fit the moment, um, that's sometimes all you need. And this kind of confidence, it is funny how rare it is in politics, because I think politics is filled with lots of very risk averse people who, you know, they they want to test ideas. They want to focus group them. And I'm sure there's a lot of that going on in the Polyev campaign. But if you zag a little bit, um, you know, you get a lot of blowback. You get a lot of people in the newspapers telling you, I told you so if something goes wrong. Um, so there is a certain amount of boldness here. Um, but I think what Polyev is doing is, is he's hearing things. He actually, you know, he does stay after at his rallies and talk to people like sometimes for hours. Um, it's something that is really useful in a leadership race where it relies on people um, mailing in votes and things like that. That personal touch can sometimes motivate that. But it was also a feedback mechanism for him. I think he was really relying on those meetings to inform, you know, what he got behind and those big rallies, those big applause moments. Those were the things that he would then the next day hammer again. So he was really working with a big feedback mechanism. I think we're kind of seeing how that is playing out in, in the policies he's supporting. Uh, kind of giant focus group. Um, well, let's shift from, you know, the win itself to now the party, uh, Sean, you, um, uh, comment on something interesting this week of just in a sense how new the membership is in this in the party in effect sean i don't want to be overly dramatic here or read too much into one event a leadership vote but is it right to say in some ways that this this is tabla rasa i mean and what is it like what is the conservative party now when the majority i mean sean you'll have the numbers but 
the majority of members have never belonged before and they came in through this campaign many of them i assume came in on some of these kind of hotter ideas that polyev was sharpening in those receiving lines you know what are we to make of this is this in some ways and again i'm not being pejorative here but like a kind of the end of an era of conservatism the end of an era of the tory party that we've grown up with which was that brokerage coalition of you know bay street and quebec gang combined with you know a smattering of red tories around the edges combined with a completely different you know conservative party in quebec and and uh western canada and all of that you know kind of held together for better or worse by respective leaders yeah, I, I, I'm sorry to dither, but I think the, the answer is maybe. Um, uh, and the reason I say that is for two reasons. One, um, it'll be interesting to see whether these um, people who came in through the leadership process um, remain active and engaged. Um, and secondly, if they start to exercise their power. Think about someone, Rudyard, um, who has been elected a few times as a conservative. Suddenly you're a rotting association membership has like fundamentally changed. There's people who now belong to your rotting association who you didn't know. Um, and who, if they see themselves as a block could actually transform local level politics. Um, it's not clear to me that they have that self image or that kind of sophistication. Um, but if you are an MP who's become something has become somewhat complacent, um, you know, this ought to be a jolt because, as you say, um, I, I think the numbers are something like um, three quarters of Conservative Party members weren't members at a certain point in 2021. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, if, if they start to exercise their clout, um, not only could they change the orientation of the national party, but they could actually start to change the complexion of the party at the at the local level of representation. And that's something I'll be watching closely um, in the lead up till the next election as we see um, the party go through the nomination process. As Stuart, um, many people commented, you know, Pierre Polyev's acceptance speech, you know, very short on uh, comments about the World Economic Forum or vaccine mandates or convoys, instead, very economic, um, very focused on, you know, kind of a mainstream conservative criticisms of uh, of Trudeau, again, primarily from an economic basis. I'm curious, though, what you make uh, sort of the last, you know, uh, 48, 72 hours and this uh, response on the part of the party, I assume directed by Pierre Polyev's staff regarding the uh, Quebec member, Alain Ray, who um, indicated that he would not be um, remaining uh, in caucus as a supporter of Jean Charest. Um, and the response uh, was for the party to text out to, you know, 100,000 plus members in Quebec, uh, a demand that he, you know, resign his seat. This then subsequently caused uh, more pointed, you know, criticism from uh, MP Rays. And then the Polyev team apologizing and walking this back. Now, rookie mistakes. I'm sure there's a lot of moving pieces right now uh, as they assume kind of control of the OLO. But is this somehow indicative of temperament? I think people you know, did have a concern that 
when you when your psychology is one of perpetual war and and the perpetual campaign um we know it's tough it's tough to make the transition to leadership yeah and the other part of this is that you have as the leader you have staff working for you who you know not every decision is going to go to the leader and they're kind of taking cues from what they expect the leader would want to do in any given situation and um how you comport yourself is um important in how those decisions kind of trickle down um i i remember actually you know jason kenny had a little bit of trouble with this early um when I say trouble, like compared to what happened later with the pandemic and everything, it seems almost laughable at this point. But there was uh, a moment when the NDP opposition was being so loud and, and Premier Jason Kenney came out with little earplugs for his caucus to, to drown out the noise of the opposition. And it was one of those things that's kind of funny in the back room, but like looked really bad when it was put out into the media. And these are the kind of things that as a leader, um, you know, you could do that as a cabinet minister or as a backbencher and it's funny and nobody really cares. But when you're the leader, uh, it becomes a problem. And I, I'm willing to grant a few mulligans in the first month and maybe in the first few months. Um, but this kind of stuff, I mean, we all know that um, in politics, there's going to be retribution and there's going to be long memories about stuff. But, you know, when it gets kind of ham fisted and it's like immediately getting into the media or you're doing things that are kind of obviously mean spirited or that accentuate something that people are already worried about you. Um, these are the kind of things that make people worry because um, it is a temperament issue. But then it's also like a political judgment issue um, when, you know, people are watching you very closely on this. So um, one other part of it, too, is that. You know, we're, we're talking about this in terms of the caucus, but also the media. We've seen a little bit of a conflagration with the media. I I think with the caucus, Polyev is going to want to tone this stuff down or, you know, ex-caucus members. Um, but with the media, it'll be really interesting to see where it goes, because there could be some benefit in a battle with the media, um, maybe more so in the mainstream than the media wants to to admit. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how they handle this because the media will always be up for this fight with Polyev and I'm, I'm sure it won't go um, wanting. Oh boy. Uh, uh, Stuart just laid a, a couple of pitches right in the strike zone for me. So let me, uh, let me take up two points as quick as I can. First of all, on the relationship to caucus, you know, one of the subjects that we spend a lot of time thinking and talking about at the hub is the role of parliament and the role of, of parliamentarians and so on. We have an episode of Hub Dialogues next week with Michael Chong, who's distinguished himself as a kind of champion of, of the, the rights and roles and responsibilities of, of parliamentarians. But to, to Rudyard's earlier point, um, Pierre Polyev has his own power base. He's responsible for bringing in, you know, something approaching 430,000 members into this party that didn't exist before. One can't help but think that Alan Ray's thought he was on solid ground in, you know, endorsing Jean Charest based on his understanding of where the kind of center of gravity was within his riding. And then Pierre Polyev just dwarfed it. Um, and he, it's important to note he won that riding in spite of Alan Ray's endorsement of an, uh, another candidate. So, you know, one can't help but think that that's going to, you know, further create an asymmetry between the leader and the leader's office and MPs within the caucus when they know he can, he can in effect, um, sort of press a button and has um, uh, this strong support within their ridings. On the issue of the of the media, I think you're exactly right that um, Polyev is seeing other conservative politicians in the U.S. I'm thinking of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, for instance, that has turned a kind of confrontational relationship with the media 
into a net political positive. And I think the media in Canada is now starting to understand that. Um, you mentioned that uh, this week, uh, uh, David Aiken, the global reporter, um, got himself into something of a, a conflict uh, with Polyev that the conservatives quickly fundraised on. And Aiken apologized and, uh, because I think he saw that he had kind of taken the bait. Um, and uh, one wonders um, how that affects the ongoing uh, way in which the media, the press gallery in particular, engages Polyev and the opposition leader's office. Do they avoid taking the bait or do they, uh, do, or do they fall into, I think, what is in, in, in effect the strategy on the part of Polyev and his team um, to uh, to kind of lean into the conflict with um, traditional media voices. Yeah, I mean, my only comment is like, who the heck calls a press conference for reporters and then doesn't let them ask questions? I mean, it's kind of it's sophomoric, um, and and it's not. It's actually not. It's not really what what the taxpayer is actually paying you to do as an elected official. So I, I, I hope, I hope for the sake of all media, I hope it kind of, we can rise above partisanship on this and, you know, politics and politicians too, that we don't kind of weaponize um, what should be some important conventions about how politicians are held to account. Cause it's not just their ideological opponents in the, in any one legislature, it is people like Stewart and Jeff Russ, our reporter uh, in British Columbia, who you know have an important role to play. And if you're not willing to take questions, you know what's the point? I understand the frustration of the press not wanting to seem like they're kind of living room, you know, furniture um, upholstery for um, some politicians' ambition. Well, look, let's take a quick break, and uh, when we come back on the other side, we're gonna. Uh, dip into the fraught return to work that's ongoing or not uh, in Canada. We'll get that for you right after this short break. Thank you for listening to The Hub's podcast. Wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that you're just one click away from receiving complimentary access to The Hub's daily email newsletter. We call it per diem, and it features some of our best analysis and insights, all built around the big issues and ideas shaping our world. Simply visit our website, www.thehub.ca, follow the links to subscribe, and the next morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, you'll receive per diem in your inbox. You can unsubscribe at any time, no worries. But we think you're really going to enjoy what you'll hear, see, and read via per diem or daily subscription email. Thanks again for listening to this Hub podcast. Now back to our program. Well, welcome back to the Friday Roundtable here at the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. Sean, this week uh, we've seen a a new series of developments, I think, that suggest a kind of further entrenchment, uh, especially on the part of uh, public service unions. I'm not just singling them out, but they have been in the news this week about this remote uh, versus in-person work debate. Uh, What are you seeing there? And I guess, you know, where does this conversation go from here? Because we had a lot of feedback from Hub listeners to our uh, kind of editorial of uh, the week before. 
a call for people to get back to work and maybe, uh, you know, a perspective that we have that in-person work does have real value for ourselves and for the, for the projects that we're kind of dedicated to, um, some interesting, you know, pushback. I, I was, it was good to see debate, uh, in the pages of the hub as a result. Yeah, I would say, um, two pieces that we published this week at the hub that I'm proud of is one by our, um, journalism fellow, Jeff Russ on, um, the, um, propensity for, uh, work from home within the public sector. Um, and in particular in the national capital region where there is such a huge concentration of public servants, um, Ottawa has a larger share of its workforce still working from home, for instance. And according to his, um, his interviews with some people in and around the government, um, there is a, a, a significant share of uh, public sector workers there who are at home and, and for all intents and purposes intend to remain at home. Uh, a second thing we published was by Lakehead University economist Livio De Matteo, which similarly showed that if you sort of dis deconstruct um, work from home across different occupations, those in public administration, which is a pretty good proxy for government, are uh, much more likely to be working from home. I mentioned those two pieces, uh, Rudyard and Stewart, because um, they're a backdrop against which we are now seeing reporting today in the Globe and Mail um, that the major federal unions are intending to try to codify the principle of work from home in um, in a collective agreements with the federal government. Um, so they're not they're no longer just bargaining on wages and and benefits and so on, but they want to, in effect, kind of create something of a tier two a, a two tier scenario. Pardon me, whereby you know return to work is going to be increasingly common in the private sector. Um, but public sector workers, if these collective bargaining uh, efforts are ultimately successful, uh, will look a lot different. And I, I worry a bit about the political economy consequences of a, a kind of two-tier society. Um, you know, what, what, what's your take, Rudyard? I think, you know, the, the consequences, it's not, you know, to beat up on public sector workers uh, asserting, you know, bargaining rights through collective agreements. That's I have no no beef with that. Um, you know, get what you can because uh, the recession's coming, and uh, on the other side of it, um, everyone's bargaining position I think will be a lot different and possibly a lot weaker. What concerns me, Sean, is just the growing, in a sense, disparity. But then between the the basket of benefits that are afforded to public service workers versus private sector workers. So if it's not only job security, income security, uh, index pensions, it's now, um, you know, uh, work at home, work at work, um, you know, hybrid, uh, flexible, adaptive, terrific. You know, again, if you can get in your collective bargaining, go for it. But let's not fool ourselves in terms of the effects of that on the private sector economy and, you know, the competition for human talent and how people will very rationally make the calculation. Well, why would I go into the private sector? Why would I choose to expose myself to, to more risk, uh, 
let's say I'm a work at home person, the inconvenience of going into the office, um, you know, the absence of, of unionization of all these various things. And you could say, well, yeah, everyone has a choice, but those choices matter because they add up to, you know, not insignificant things like productivity. And if you have more and more people opting out of the productive parts of the economy, government does many great things. I'm not saying it doesn't, but it, it's not, it's not an engine for national productivity, which in turn, as we've written and reported on a lot of the hub is, is just critical to rising economics and living standards, uh, funding the entire you know social safety net into the future so that we can enjoy um, shared and universal benefits. If you don't have significant productivity gains and you don't have you know nudges and uh, you know market mechanisms that prod people into more productive as opposed to less productive behavior, you have to start wondering about the trajectory of the country. And what I worry is a kind of European um, scleroticism that sets in where you have ever greater shares of GDP allocated to the administrative state versus truly free market or less, less uh, government sectors of, of the economy. That's the direction you're going to go in. And it all starts with these, well, it's already started, but it gets amplified by this endless whittling down of the comparative benefits of public and private sector work. So Stuart, can I just weigh in for a second before you, you jump in? I, just to reinforce um, some of the things that, that Rudyard said, I, I, I take the point, Rudyard, about the, the opportunity costs and the economic consequences of what you're talking about. But there's also the social cohesion aspect, which I wouldn't want to minimize. Um, you know, we're seeing that just another example play out in the context of the day of mourning uh, on Monday for Queen Elizabeth II. If you look at um, uh, workers who have been given the day off across the country, it is almost in every province of the country concentrated inside the, the public sector. And again, I, I don't diminish the work that public sector uh, employees do or their importance in providing services and so on. Um, but one can't help but think that, as you say, as we start to kind of layer these differences between the experience of public and private sector workers, it, it's inevitably creates um, a kind of a sense of animus and the risk of uh, harms to our national cohesion. And, and it seems to me um, codifying the principle of, of remote work is just a, another one of these um, kind of points of divergence um, that have, as you say, economic and I think potentially social consequences. Stuart, um, you know, we've been having readers write in uh, all this um, week, and I'll get to you again to give out the email where they can do that, uh, about their own experiences of returning to work or not. Um, what have you taken away from those, um, those contributions? It seems like this is a very live debate. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, it's editorial at thehub.ca if anyone wants to email us. Um, but it is, I think it's one of those issues where, of course, because everybody has their own unique situation, um, they have a perspective. And I like my I'm conflicted myself because I have two small kids and there are obviously benefits to working from home because I can, you know, pick them up easier. You can uh, pick them up from the bus if you want to. And uh, you can work in the evening just as easily as you can work in the morning. Um, I think these things kind of work in some ways, but I miss the office so much because of the sort of creative spark 
of the office. And I, I find myself wrestling with that a lot. And I probably, a lot of people are because, you know, that's the debate we're all having. Um, the one that I think that struck out to me this week was somebody said that you guys are just obsessed with the office. Um, there's lots of other jobs that, uh, are carrying on elsewhere. And, you know, that's kind of one of the things about journalism though, is that people who have been going to work all this time have just been doing what they've always done. So there's no story there. They're just doing their job. And the, the big sea change is happening in the white collar world. And that's the phenomenon. That's the trend that's going to draw the eyes of, uh, you know, journalistic eyes. Um, so I, one of the things I think just to touch on what Sean said that, that concerns me, I think most about this is there used to be on the left, more of a focus on class differences and, you know, socioeconomic differences seen through the lens of class. They've kind of shifted that lens more to race and other matters like that. Um, but if you look at the way the pandemic broke down, Livio's piece from this week really showed that it broke down along class lines and there's nobody, I think the, the right has always been a little bit allergic to these things. Um, it's changing now. I think the right is sort of becoming more um, able to look at matters of class than they used to be. But um, if you were, say, working in a store somewhere you had to go to and the school closed, you were in a real fix because you had to then either take time off work. You had to find someone to watch your kid while they were in virtual school at home or at grandma's house or something. If you were me and you were working from home, you could just put your kid in the basement and check in every 20 minutes and make sure everything was going okay. And that disparity was hard to avoid during the pandemic. And now we're seeing the white collar workers are trying to bake that in to the post pandemic life. I can only imagine it's pretty galling for people who've had to deal with more of a struggle this entire time. And, and now they're looking at those losses being baked into society. Yeah. Well, let me be a class trader and uh, amplify and agree with what you just said, Stuart, you know, we really have to be careful about the laptop class awarding itself an ever greater set of of perks and benefits um, in our society on the basis of the not insignificant power we have over over the media, over um, large swaths of the economy, and to be Marxist about it, the control we have over capital. Um, you know, I just, I think of HG Wells as the time machine, you know, the Elocks and the Morloy, um, or the Eloy and the Morlocks. <laughs> I just worry that we're, you know, we let's not return to, you know, a 19th, 18th century, you know, Downton Abbey economy of people literally working in the basement, <laughs> you know, furnishing food and clothes and polishing hunting rifles. Um, you know, for a dilettante, you know, assemblers of zeros and ones, you know, strutting around above ground. And and don't fool ourselves as a laptop class about the the kind of epistemic dead end that is um, that life. Um, there's a reason why it, it was a good thing that the aristocracy fell. Um, there was a lot of wasted human potential and capital in the aristocracy as much as anywhere else in society. And we have to be very careful about how, in very subtle ways, but uh, we have as a, over, as a society over the last 
decade or so and accelerated through COVID and this whole return to work debate, we're, we're creating a new aristocracy. And, um, you know, thank God we washed the old one away. And the last thing I want to do, Sean, is return to a society with these kinds of unconscious, embedded privileges creeping through every aspect of our lives, including work. I think that's right. And, you know, we can tell ourselves that it's somehow different because this model is meritocratic. Um, but I think a lot of listeners would roll their eyes um, when when they hear that. And, and so, yeah, I think, you know, if you're a conservative and I, you know, the, the, it's so, something, it's a way I would self-describe, then questions around cohesion and stability um, are um, paramount. And, you know, I'm not overstating, I don't want to overstate things. If the, you know, one of the PSAC or one of the public sector unions is able to codify working from home in the collective agreement with the federal government, we're not going to collapse into, into some kind of civil war. But it starts to, it continues to sort of chip away at the shared experiences and kind of sense of empathy that we can have between different regions, um, you know, and uh, in this particular case, different um, people in different types of work and different types of occupations. And uh, I think it's something that our political leaders and other leaders in our society, um, the winners of the so-called meritocracy um, need to be much more cognizant of, especially against the backdrop of an explosion of populism all around the Western world, which is where we started this conversation. So Stuart, what can we uh, look forward to do in the hub next week? I was going to say, you can read us all in our upcoming issue of Jacobin magazine, if anyone's looking for our <laughs> <laughs> upcoming writing. Um, but on uh, Monday, we're going to have a good piece from our resident uh, historian, uh, JDM Stewart, on just kind of tracing the history of Canada along with the history of Queen Elizabeth II. It's something that I was talking to James about just it's just crazy how much happened in her life. And it's kind of nice to go over our own history in that respect and keep an eye open to, uh, well, the piece critical of the, uh, the idea of the Ontario science table and the idea of sort of resolutely following the science without thinking too hard about it. And, um, I know this one will be a winner. We've got Trevor Toome coming on Tuesday, so watch out for him. Nice. Okay, guys. Uh, terrific round table. Uh, enjoy, um, this uh, September weekend and we'll do it all again next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable podcast at The Hub. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, your executive director. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, the editor-at-large at The Hub, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Aidan Moscovich, intern at The Hub. You can access a YouTube version of this audio on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get it on our website, www.thehub.ca. Look for the Friday Roundtable. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any 
audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations for you, featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers. The big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's the Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite audio program. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. We'll do it all again next week. Bye-bye.